Good to see new faces this morning. Well, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll take the time that we've got left, which isn't much, and we'll just kind of um, we'll pitch this out there. Father, thank you for, um, for committing yourself to, to be our God, that we could be your people. What, a, what an unbelievable privilege that really is. What an unbelievable hope. What an unbelievable security. What an unbelievable promise that is to bank all of our anticipation and expectation upon that you have committed yourself to be our God. And we can give ourselves and should give ourselves and will give ourselves freely to you as your people. And so we ask very little time this morning uh, that you come in and do your work um, in our hearts, in our minds, through your word, uh, that you might be glorified, that we would be transformed, that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul that for your name's sake, for the sake of your glory, we will boast solely in our weakness. That we will find our weakness great strength because it brings you great glory. We ask this in the name of your precious Son. Amen. We, uh, we've spent the last several weeks uh, walking through a series that we have called Cultivate, uh, where we have been talking about the convictions or, or the values that we want to see embodied in the people of this church or, or in this church. Um, far too often it's a practice of churches to come up with values or ideas that they think are important, or that should be important, and to call them convictions uh, and to allow them to remain 30,000 feet above life, uh, to allow them to remain somewhere up in the conversational realm and the intellectual realm where we can rally around these things and talk about these things and try to find unity among these things but never really be transformed by them. And, and so we've spent some time the last few weeks talking about the convictions that we pray will make us who we are, that God will work into the, the DNA of this young church, this church that's barely a year old, uh, that he would work these things into our souls, work these things into our lives, uh, that they might change us and they might reflect something of him in the process. And and so we've spent the time talking about what it means to actually embody these values. Uh, far from leaving our convictions in a, in a place of conversation and, and, and philosophy and speculation, we want to see them take root in our lives and, and begin to bear fruit in the way that we actually live. And we, talk, we called it cultivate because really that's a process. It's a process. It's, it's not something that happens instantaneously. We are not yet what we will be. No, none of us. None of us possess these convictions in full measure. Uh, none of us possess these convictions in such a way that our life completely embodies them in the way that God has orchestrated it to be. We're all in process. We're all being transformed day by day as we have the capacity by God's grace to look at the beauty of God in the face of Christ and behold His glory and be transformed into His image piece by piece, day by day, moment by moment. We are not yet what we will be, but we want to be a people who are increasingly identified by these things. We want to be a people whose lives, whose souls are increasingly identified by trusting in Jesus above everything else. I mean, being a people who, who together live out the reality of the fact that there are many things that seek to rob our trust and our joy from Jesus, 
And we want to be a people who are committed to cultivating our souls, to trust in Him and who He is and what He has done above everything else. Because we don't. We don't. Many times throughout the day, sometimes even when I stand here, it's a fight. Did you really say that? I'm about to open my mouth. Did you, did you really say that? Did you really mean that? Can I trust you to, can I trust you to fulfill your word? I trust you when you say that your word does not return void. I'm open my mouth now. And there are moments when throughout the day our hearts don't trust him and we trust other things above him. and We don't treasure the riches of the gospel. We don't just value the gospel and the good news of what God has done. We actually want to be a people whose souls treasure it, who see and are learning and appreciating in greater measure the infinite value of the gospel, of what God has done, the good news of what he's done for us in Jesus. We orchestrate our lives and our priorities and our time and our passions to hold on to it and to cling to it above everything. We want to be a people who delight, who find great joy in the wisdom of God's process of transformation and the way that he is orchestrating change in our hearts that we can have a holy discontentment because of the fact that we are not yet what we will be, but great hope because we know that he's working in us to change us by his glory in his, into his image. We want to be a people that surrender to the Word of God, not just the people that value the Bible, who are good at articulating what the Bible is, why we should believe it, who have all the discussions and arguments in history. We don't want to be a people who live in this land that own Bibles and talk about Bibles and display Bibles, but never actually surrender to the Word of God, whose hearts and lives are subject to who God has revealed Himself to be. We actually want to be a people who are surrendering to it, who are living with the urgency of eternity, like Ray talked about last week, or two weeks ago not caught in the trap of the temporal, not defined by what we can get our hands on and what we can see, but whose lives are shaped with a, by a perspective of eternity and the urgency with which it carries. And we want to be a people who pursue the depth of community, not just acquaintances, not just friendships, or like Chris talked about last week, spiritual friendships, things that transcend commonalities and hobbies and affinities. We want to be people who pursue the depth of what God has for us in these spiritual friendships. One of his greatest instruments of change and transformation in our lives are the people that he gives us, the church that he gives us, the family that he gives us, the neighbors that he gives us. People, one of God's greatest instruments of change. We want to be a church, be a people that pursues the depth of the community that he's given us, that he has handed to us and made available to us because of his gospel with which we are treasuring everything that we are. Um, so this week, we're going to hit the last one. Probably the most unpopular. Uh, probably the one that you sit and, if you're honest, um, will wrestle with and think through. Um, will be the most difficult to actually own and engage. But this week, we're going to talk about what it means to actually be a people who actively display God's strength in our weakness. We want to be a people who actively seek to display God's strength in our weakness. And here's where it gets tough. Weakness is not a value in our culture. It's not a value in our society. And we use that word specifically, but biblically when we get to the text, you'll see that there's another word that you could use for this that probably captures the whole of what Paul's talking about and what the Bible's talking about in this concept of weakness. And it's probably 
probably fair to say that you could call it honesty. Honesty. Um, Sober-mindedness is probably another way to say it. That God's strength is displayed when we're honest about who we are. When we're honest about what's going on in us. When we're honest about the weaknesses in our life. When we don't play the role of polishing the, the shell that we might project a particular image. God is not glorified in that process, but God is glorified. God has made great. His strength is experienced and made known when, when we accept, when we live out of, when we live in our, our weakness, our honesty. The Apostle Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. For God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, listen to this, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness. That's, that is not an American thing to say. That is not a statement that is cultivated in our vocabulary. The Apostle Paul said, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a foreign concept to us. I mean, every white blood cell of our pride attacks this idea like a foreign invader. I mean, when this idea of our weakness, our honesty, owning who we are, being honest and vulnerable and authentic with people that God might be glorified in it and through it, and we'll see how in a minute, when that's presented before us, our souls, our pride, our egos, our minds, repel it like an invader. This is going to be one of the most difficult things we as a church ever have to wrestle through and cultivate with one another. It's one of my greatest prayers in my own life, uh, for my heart, for my soul, uh, for my family, for you, and for this church, that we would be a people who actively seek to display God's strength in our weakness. That much of what we do is not built around projecting something to a watching world that would entice them towards something in here, but that we would trust in the power of God and the strength and the richness of the gospel and be content with that in trusting that when we are who we are at that weakest moment, no pretense, no caveats, no explanations ahead of time, when we are who we are, God's strength is made great in those moments. We do not have to be something other than who we actually are for God to be glorified in our lives, through this church, and in our families. If you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians, but don't go to chapter 12. Go to chapter 4. We do not have time, not even much time. We do not have time. Um, so we will go fast, and I will lay this out for you. 
And we will trust that God, by his Holy Spirit, does something with it in you. Um, a little background so that where we're going to go has some context. Second Corinthians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to this church in Corinth. One of four. We only have two in the Bible. We don't know where the other two went. We're probably sure he wrote more. Uh, but he wrote four letters to this church. Um, and the first two, the two, well, the two that we have in the Bible, are similar but kind of different in emphasis. Uh, Corinth was a, a, a bigger church in a metropolitan area, had all kinds of problems, all kinds of sin, not unlike this church or other churches throughout this city. Uh, and in his first letter to the church that we have in the Bible, Paul is addressing many of the things that are going on in that church, trying to rightly align these people that their lives may live in step with the gospel. Um, but in the second letter, the emphasis is similar, but it kind of changes. The Apostle Paul is actually now what looks to be on the defensive, defending his ministry, defending his call of God to plant these churches. Uh, this church that he helped establish in Corinth has kind of fallen under sway of some outside teachers, and, and even those inside the church, some of those who were probably there when Paul started the church and, and taught the church were there, and they were beginning to doubt the message that Paul preached, and not even the message that Paul preached, but Paul himself, because of some things like the way he looked. Paul, in, in their eyes, wasn't the strong and, and great and beautiful orator that they were accustomed to. Paul was a, a weak man, a physically frail man a man who had suffered much for the gospel. And people began to discredit the power of this gospel and the great things that God was doing through the Apostle Paul because of things like his appearance. How could this great stuff, this great ministry, this great message come through this? Uh, no, that couldn't be the case. And they began to doubt the message of the gospel because of things like that or Paul's mannerisms. Things in there where they began to doubt Paul because some didn't feel like he was compassionate enough. He's not the kind of pastor that we had wanted, or that we thought he would be, or that he should be. We don't like the way he does what he does. We don't like the fact that he's not here. We don't like the fact that he's small. We don't like the fact that he's frail. We don't like whatever it is. The Corinthians were charging the message of the gospel as insufficient because of their idea of weakness. Because they felt like the Apostle Paul was weak. Now let me ask you, when your weaknesses are pointed out, or when the light is shed by someone else onto what you already know to be true about yourself, how do you respond? How do you respond? If you're like me, you probably initially respond with a catalog of all of your strengths. I mean, my, nobody knows this better than my wife. Um, the most beautiful thing about being married for eight years, yeah, eight years, um, is is this aspect of my ego has been plugged into an amplifier and absolutely blown up to tremendous proportions to such a degree that I could see that in my life and in my heart, weakness, honesty, uh, awareness of certain things about me, that was just foreign in my world. Weakness. That meant you sat on the bench. It meant you didn't play. Someone pointed out something that was off about me or the way I played when I was playing soccer. I, I was quick to make sure that was the last, not the last impression that they had of me. And, and what began to happen is, is personally, as things were pointed out to me in my own personality or what I was doing, I would be very quick to point out all the ways that I was superior 
did whatever it is that you thought I was inferior to. To such a degree that I got really good at convincing people when it was all said and done that they were the ones who were actually inferior in whatever it was they were pointing out to me. So that I could walk away feeling very good about myself and they could walk away wondering why they ever opened their mouth in the first place. And so, if you're honest, and I don't know how you deal with this, how do you respond when your weaknesses are pointed out? When they bust out into the light? The Apostle Paul did something absolutely unbelievable. Instead of actually defending his strengths, I mean, the idea of calling the Apostle Paul's ministry into question is ludicrous to me enough, but I didn't live back then, so I wasn't totally ingrained by the things that they wanted in a leader and in a pastor. So it seems a little strange to me. But the idea of the Apostle Paul being called into question because of his frailty as a man, it just seems so silly. And instead of standing up and, and writing this letter or going to Corinth directly to speak, and, and instead of defending his intellect, his prowess, his, his experiences with God, all that was there with him, he actually, actually agreed with them. He actually said, you're right. Hey, those things, they're probably true about me, but they're the things that prove the message of the gospel more than anything else. Paul had actually gotten to a place with himself and his understanding of who God was and the richness of the gospel that he could say, absolutely, those things about me, unbelievably true. Unbelievably true. It only makes the grace and the power and the glory of God that much greater to see what he has done through me come to pass because of all those things. Praise be to God. For his sake, I'll boast only in my weakness. For his sake, I will boast only in my weakness that his power and his glory might be made known. That's a crazy notion for most of us. That's not the way that we tend to approach personal weakness, personal struggle, honest, authentic reflection and understanding about who we are. You've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's what's going on in this book. And we'll, 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 blow, we'll blow quick through here because I want to get down to two verses. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, all that I just told you, what's going on, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why would Paul lose heart? that you love, people that you trusted, people that you cared about, people that you led begin to turn and fail to believe and trust and support when you're shipwrecked and abandoned and twice nearly brought to death by lashes, nearly stoned. And you go through the things that the Apostle Paul has gone, gone through. It's easy to stand there and say, you know what? I, I just don't know if it's worth it. I just don't know. Is it really worth it anymore? I don't know if you've ever been in one of those spots. If you've ever been in anything in your life where you've gotten to the place where losing heart seemed like the only thing left to do. If, if being there and thinking, you know what, it's just, it's just not worth it anymore. I, I have a very, very familiar taste for that moment. I remember that moment. I remember being in the hospital two years ago, ready to just say, I just don't, I just don't think it's worth it anymore. And all that we were going through, I just... I just don't. The Apostle Paul is. 
the gospel has begun to work so deeply into his life. He's begun to work so deeply into his soul. It's been cultivated so tightly, woven so intricately into the fabric of who he is. Though all of this go, though the sheep fight the shepherd, though all assails him, he doesn't lose heart. We renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, these guys have come into this church and begun to twist things around and turn the people in some sense against Paul. They've, they've taken the message of the gospel and they've taken the word of God, and at that point, the Old Testament, and they've twisted it. They've begun to take its message and use it for their own end, for their own gain. And that's not something totally unfamiliar in our day and age. The Apostle Paul said, look, we, we've renounced every disgraceful and underhanded way. We, we do not come to you in any way, shape, or form, or fashion trying to gain anything for ourselves. I can say with an absolutely clean conscience that I stand before you and deliver to you the truth of who God is, and I can go to sleep at night because of that. There's nothing deceitful or underhanded about who I am or what I have done contrary to those who now you seem to be putting your trust and your hope in how, how quickly you've forgotten who I actually am, what's actually going on in your life. In, this, in their case, Paul, oh, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So what he's saying is, if there are people in there who do not understand the message of the gospel or do not see the gospel as good news, it's that way because the enemy has blinded their heart to see the beauty and the good news that's inherent in who God is for us in Jesus. It's not anything that I have done to undercut this message, to change this message, to keep them from seeing it. It's something spiritual that's going on in their life. They've been blinded by the enemy to not see the beauty of God, to see the glory of God in Christ. But we come to you not to get Jesus to serve us by pitching a message, but we've come as servants of the gospel to serve Jesus in proclaiming the truth of who he is and what he has done. And here's where it gets really sweet, and here's where we're going, and we'll, we'll stay here for the next few minutes. The next few verses. Here's what it means when we talk about displaying God's strength in our weakness and how it actually works out and how we actually get to a place like the place the Apostle Paul speaks from in this letter. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you were to read these first six verses, it would almost be like a crescendo. If you could get here and, and think about how he would be thinking as he would writing him, you've got to see him building up emotionally and mentally and, and what he's writing. He gets to this place where he said, I haven't come to twist this. I, I haven't come to serve myself. I, I haven't come to be anything to you but who God has called me to be. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The God who simply spoke when there was nothing and things became. The God who spoke pierce the darkness with a simple word and light shone where light had never been. He has spoken and has shown light. Those blinded, unable to see the beauty of Christ, 
the beauty of the face of God in Christ, the message of the gospel, he has spoken light into our hearts, and now we can see. Just as he spoke in the beginning in that darkness, and light was, he has now spoken, and now we can see. Our hearts are alive to the glory of God in Christ. Our hearts are alive to the reality of who he is for us. Our hearts are alive to who we are in his face and what he has done that we did not absolutely deserve. He has spoken. The creator of all things has spoken light into our hearts, and now we see. He's he's just rising. I can almost see him having to put his little quill down and just pray. Just pray. All of a sudden, Paul's just got to sing. This is who I was. I was blind. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I could see him if he knew those words singing. Paul, you were blind to the beauty of this. God, unbelievably, has spoken light into our soul. I'm going to give verse 7. He picks his pen back. Because he's got a thought. He's got a situation he's got to resolve. And he's got something he wants to say. But, but, he's spoken and now we see the beauty of the gospel in the face of Christ. But, we have this treasure in jars of clay. But, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But, what's the treasure? In sorrows. What's the treasure? It's the light-giving power of the gospel. Paul said, we have this treasure, this capacity that God has given, that has spoken light into our hearts, that has transformed us, has made us absolutely new, has absolutely restored and redeemed all that had been separated, all that had been broken, and was actively working to transform us into his image and reconcile us to God. This light that has spoken life into our hearts, we have this treasure. We have it. It is in us. It's in jars of clay. It's in jars of clay. Of all the things, the, the preciousness and the worth of this treasure, knowing what the Apostle Paul knows about the gospel, knowing what the Apostle Paul feels about the gospel, knowing the importance of the message and the reality of what he's talking about, you would expect to hear the Apostle Paul say, we have this treasure. He's locked it away, safe and secure, behind vaults with two armed men, a couple of camels that spit, and whatever else they would do. He said, no, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Back in the first century, clay jars were the insignificant stoneware or or earthenware that a person or a family would have. They would keep scraps of food in. Um, They would keep household wares in. Um, They were very fragile, easily broken. They would chip and they would break and they would crack. And they would actually become insignificant at that point. Everything else, glass could be melted down and recast. Bronze could be hammered into something different. Um, all the other substances with which they would make containers could be retooled if something were to happen. But clay, it broke. And it was insignificant. It was actually valueless. 
the beauty behind clay in the clay pots was that what made that pot valuable was what was actually inside of it. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He said, we've got this unbelievable treasure. We have got the redemptive restoration message of reconciliation and reality that's come from God in us. But he's given it to us in this frail, weak, fragile container. He hasn't given it to us in vessels of glass and Grecian urns that can be put up on display. He's given it to us in fragile, very real, very human, and very fragile. The next verse, the last half of verse 7. Why? Why did he do it that way? I wish we could talk more about these clay, this clay, but we don't have time. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Why did God do it this way? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and is for us. See, here's the thing. Here's what we struggle with with weakness. Here's what we struggle with with honesty. Here's what we struggle with with acknowledging what God is doing in us, how he's changing us, and, and where we are, and, and living with confidence in who he is out of what's going on. Here's where weakness becomes a battle for us. God has set it up that he would be made known and he would be made great and he would show himself off to the world as jars of clay, weak and fragile and cracked people like us recognized who we were, but the treasure that was within us was prized more highly than the exterior container that we kept it in. The beauty of what God has done and what he is doing and the way that he displays his greatness and his strength in our weakness is that it is no longer about who we are and what we look like and the pretense that we have, but as we live as a people with a trust in him and a security in him and a hope in him and a belief in that he is in us and changing us and he is greater than anything that we could ever do or project, he is made known. He is made great. He is prized above all things. And the problem is, in our hearts, and I think we've talked about this in a hundred different ways, probably through every single one of these values, because it always gets back to this ultimately. Our hearts' chief concern, more than we ever care to admit, is to do work on this jar, to do work on this vessel, to polish the, fill the cracks and paint the outside and do something to get it to display up on a shelf so that people would look at it and admire it. And God said, the way that my glory is made known, the way that my strength is made great, the way that I show myself off to a watching world that shows them the greatness of the power and the good news of what I have done is when you don't do that, but when you recognize the reality of who you are and who I am and you cling more to who I am and not to what you can do and what you can project to others. See, I heard somebody say this one time and this stuck with me. Maybe it'll stick with you and maybe it'll make sense. And I don't, I don't know, so I pray that it does. I heard somebody talking one time, and I can't remember who, but they talked about the crushing weight of a good example. The crushing weight of a good example. See, especially in the church, and everybody does this, but we, we, really, we really turn this into an art in the church. We like to take our jars and fancy them and pretty them and display them and put them up on shelves and 
let people walk in and admire what we have on display. We'd like for people to look at our lives and go, oh, what a great dad. Oh, what a great parent. Oh, what a great husband. Oh, what a great worker. Oh, what a great preacher. Oh, what a great church. Oh, what a great, 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 great thing. Never actually allowing people to see the reality of who we actually are and the great hope and power of God at work in us, changing us into what he wants us to be. We actually busy ourselves with projecting this particular image of who we want to be seen as and who we hope God changes us into, never allowing people to see the power of God at work in us that they might see him and be drawn to him for the same hope and the same trust and the same strength with which we're clinging to. And instead of actually helping people come closer to trusting who Jesus is and understanding the depth of his love for us, we actually crush them with the weight of this good example. Not a transformed life, but a good example. We, we put this thing out there that looks and walks like a perfect little robot that doesn't do this and doesn't do this and we don't do this and we don't do this and this is what we do and what we don't do, never allowing ourselves, like Chris talked about last week, to pursue the depth of, of honesty and reality and we project something out onto a people and we say, this is what it means to do this or this is what it means to be this and instead of drawn to it, they're crushed by it. They're crushed by it. God said, look, I place this treasure infinitely great this unbelievably undeserved treasure of restoration and redemption in you, this jar of clay, but my surpassing power, all surpassing power, belongs to God, belongs to me, and him, and not us. Not us. And this begins to happen when we begin to cling tightly to the treasure within and not the jar on the outside. We begin to cling tightly to the treasure within and value the treasure within. He begins to work from the inside out and the cracks get crushed. The edges get sanded. And in the process, his greatness is made known to a people who are looking around going, Look, I need help. I'm hurting and I need help. Does anybody understand this? Does anybody else? struggle with the same thing. Obviously, those people over there don't look at them. They're perfect. They do. And you should know by now. All you got to do is get to know somebody for a day in the world and they're perfect. No matter how hard they want you to think they're perfect. But that's what they do. And we put this thing out there. And God has wired this thing in such a way that weakness, honesty, is a strength that as we cling tightly to the treasure within, as we begin, like we talked about the values, treasuring the richness of the gospel, he would be made known as we would live honestly. We would live openly. We would live without pretense. And see, what you realize with this, with what Paul's talking about here, that if you have this treasure, if you have this treasure, if you would call yourself a, a Christian, you have this treasure residing within you, there's nothing that you did to actually earn it. See, what really begins to put context onto this whole thing is when you begin to see that this all-surpassing power, this treasure, this light that shines out of darkness, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, if you have this treasure of the gospel in you, you didn't do anything to earn it. 
You didn't do anything to deserve it. It was something that he's shown in you, spoke life and creation and restoration into you. So when you look at other people, there's no reason to have to put on something else out there. There's no reason to have to put a pretense out there to paint your jar so that people look at you and see something else. You didn't deserve and earn what you've actually got. So you can be confident in who you are because God is at work in you and they can see the same confidence at work. As you cling tightly to the realities of the gospel, you can let go of the desire to be seen a certain way. Weakness and honesty, growth and process, all the things we've talked about for the last seven weeks can become a strength. Become a strength and all of a sudden as a church begins to do that. As a people begin to do that. As the gospel becomes prized and treasured and, and pretense and all the things that come with it and all the false expectations and all the things that we throw out there at people and at one another can fall. And our comfort and our security and our confidence can come from the treasure that resides within and not the jar that's seen without. Oh man, the things which God will do. Listen, listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 9. I think I typed it because I love it. I've been thinking about it all, all week long. This is what God said. He said this about Israel, and he says this about his church, and he says it about his people. When this begins to happen, when a people actively seek to display God's strength in their weakness, when the things that we talk about being convictions in our lives and in this church begin to actively work themselves out into our hearts and into our lives, and change begins to take place. Listen to this. God says, this, shit, this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth. For you shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and the prosperity I provide for them. God is a restoring God. And he is in the business of taking broken Clay jars, earthen vessels, and restoring them and transforming them. And he did this in Jerusalem, and he does this today by bringing a people together, by bringing people together whose hearts and whose souls are growing in intensity and desire to be passionate about who he is and what he has done, or as we say right here, to treasure the riches of the gospel, whose hearts are increasingly desiring to treasure all that he is for us. And he brings them together. And as they live their lives together, pursuing the depth of community, displaying his strength and their weakness, honesty, authenticity, openness, clinging tightly to who he is and what he has done, God shows himself off in a way that we could never paint him to be. You want to actually see God do something in your life and in your family and in this city and through this church? Well, Look, he will show himself off in all of his greatness when we get out of his way. When we actually allow him to work in us and can begin to live with a hope and a security and a trust in who he is and what he has done and allow his greatness and strength to be made known through our weakness, God will show himself off. He has no problem doing that. And in such, he has promised that this is what he will do. And that's why we've taken so much time, five, six weeks, to walk through these things because that's the hope. The hope is not just that we found a better way to talk about convictions. Maybe it wasn't a better way. Maybe it was a worse way. Maybe we should just listed them out on a piece of paper and you can take them home and that'd be a whole lot easier when we talk about something else. The goal wasn't to find a better way to talk about these things or to fill a schedule or to fill a time slot. The hope is to, is to listen to what he has said and 
what he has called us to be and how he's called us to live throughout the entire Bible, throughout the entire story of redemption, and say, look, be a people, be a church who pursue his glory and through whom he makes unbelievable change and transformation a reality in this city and in this time. This is how he's calling us to live. Not what he's calling us to know, not what he's calling us to agree to, not what he's calling us to read, not what he's calling us to do, but how he's calling us to live. And as we become a people who are diligent about cultivating our souls to reflect the character of the one who has changed us and saved us, God will show himself off in our lives and through his church. And that's our hope. Uh, look, there is, don't even hear me not be honest about this. There is a human side to all of this that says, you know what, do something great here. That'd be great. Let people know about this place. That'd be great. Let people, let people click on the site. That'd be cool. I don't want to meet more people out in the city who recognize me from the site. That's cool. Yeah, look, that's sin. That, that, that's sin. It's there. I'm not going to lie. But the desire, why we do this, why, why, why we pursue this calling, that in this city and in this time and for generations to come, God would show himself off. That he would show himself off. That we could get to the place where we could truly be instruments of his glory. That through us, in our lives, through our kids, and through all that we do, God would make a great name for himself in Richmond. Not that we would make a great name for ourselves. Not that we make a great name for our city. But that God would make a great name for himself through us. That's what our hope is. That's what we pray. That's why these things are so important to us. Why we take time to talk about them as imperfectly as we've done. And we will go back to them again and again and again, trying to be faithful to allow God to weave these things into our hearts and into our souls. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and uh, Father, weakness and, and, and honesty the most difficult thing for us to deal with and for me to deal with and, and what I think second to or really it's a fruit I think of treasuring who you are and what you've done for us but of all these other things I think you will make a name for yourself as we become a people whose lives get out of the way and allow people to see you working in us let us be a people who celebrate what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives. Let our weaknesses be places of boasting. Let us be quick to boast about the places that you're working in our life. Let us be confident about who you are and what you have said about us. You have called us sons and daughters, and that will never change. Let us be so confident in who you are and what you have done that we can boast about the places in our lives where you're at work, where we're not yet what we will be where we can boast about how you're changing us and showing us things that we need to transform in places where we fail to trust or to treasure or to pursue or to surrender. Let those places be places of great boasting for us because it's in those places that you're made great, that your all-surpassing power is made known as you take very crooked sticks like me and, and draw unbelievably beautiful pictures. And so God, thank you for Thank you for your work of restoration and redemption. Thank you for your wisdom that decides that you will be exalted and made great as, as I own the, the weakness and the frailty of this 
earthen vessel that I am. May we be able to say with Paul, for your sake, for your name's sake, I'll, I'll boast in my weakness that you might be made wise. For when I'm weak, I'm really strong.